Sri Guru Parampara ki jai. Grantarasriman Bhagavat ki jai. Guru Premanande. We're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, first canto, second chapter. Second chapter begins with an auspicious invocation on the part of Sutta Goswami, who in the first chapter had been asked a number of questions, six different questions that more or less form the basis of Srimad Bhagavatam. The answers follow in the successive chapters and are... uh, while answered more directly in this immediately succeeding chapters in this canto, they're talked about again and again throughout the text as well. <clears throat> so we've completed the the uh, auspicious invocation on the part of Sutta Goswami, where he glorified the sages for their their questions, the level of their interest. He praised his own Siksha Guru Sukadev Gosami, who had spoken the great uh, Srimad Bhagavatam in an assembly that Sutta was also present in. And um, he asked for his power within his own heart that he could speak compassionately for the welfare of um, the, the world and in future generations on this subject, which it's been determined here by Suzuki Goswami, must be, this subject must be a reiteration with insight um, on that which I heard from Sukadev, the Bhagavad, because of the nature of the questioning of the sages. And of course, then he offered his respects to the deity presiding over the area where the book had been written, the great Bhagavad, or where it was taught to Sugadev by by Vyas and Naranarayan and to uh, uh, the subject of the book, Krishna, and so on and so forth. And then again, he concluded his his uh, auspicious kind of invocation or invoking of auspicious before beginning to speak with, uh, uh, once again, glorifying the questioners themselves. Indeed, he practically answered their first question by glorifying their questions. They had asked, what was the uh, ultimate good for human society? And basically said, the kind of questions you're answering, asking about Krishna, that will bring the ultimate good. He says, yatma, yenatma sampraseedati, which is what they asked, yatma sampraseedati, what will satisfy the self, um, and so he, he concludes his auspicious kind of invocation here with that word, yenatma sampraseedati. And then he'll say it again here in the second um, verse following the auspicious invocation, in which he answers more specifically the first question and particularly the second question about what is the essence of the scripture? What does it say about... Um, what we should be doing with our lives such that our time will be best spent. So, here he says it. Savaipung samparo dharmo yato bhakti rarhoksaje ahoituki apatiyachaya yatma samprasidati yayatma samprasidati yenatma samprasidati This is what they're asking about. How the atma can be satisfied. The self can be satisfied. Here in this verse, yayatma samprasidati, yayatma suprasidati, um, speaks about, about two things, about how the self, not the conventional sense of self, the ego, egoic sense of self that we've fashioned, so to speak, and are are um, struggling to maintain a lost cause, no doubt. Uh, it, along with other, all other things of the world, is here today and it will be gone tomorrow. But there's something that can think about that. 
And that's the other self, the non-conventional, if you will, self, the one that doesn't answer to convention, um, that, that seeks to go beyond the conventions of the world and, and the, um, the norm and the limitations, as I've explained it, that the world seems to impose upon us. This is the real self. It's unfettered by the, uh, the unencumbered by material identification. It can fly high in the sky of its aspiration to be more. So the unconventional self and one who pursues it acts unconventionally. Hmm? That self is being described here, how it will be satisfied, and how at the same time, with the use of the same word, yayatma, supersidity, the supreme self will be satisfied. And the two go together. This is, of course, bhakti, which is going to be being discussed here as an answer to the question. Hmm? That means, what I mean to say is that yourself will be satisfied by satisfying the supreme self. They go together. Yourself, in the higher sense of self, will be fully known in terms of understanding not only itself, isolated from its environment, but itself in relation to its environment. This is the difference between self-realization and God-realization. To do away with, to transcend the material environment, the falsity of the material environment, and to come to know oneself is one thing. But to know oneself, that self, then in relation to the the greater environment, that is God-realization. In other words, in relation to the false representation of reality, we have no concerns. We have nothing to do. We have no duty in relation to that. We we are we feel obliged by the conventions of the world, but those conventions are false. They they give rise to designations, material designations that we chase after and so forth. So to not respond to that, we need, we need not. We have no obligation in relation to the world. We are obliged to ourselves. And of course, that's good for the world. Charity begins at home. Be good to yourself in the real sense of the self, and you'll do good to the world because you'll shine light on the darkness that is the world of material obligation as it's seen. The karmic realm obliges us. We're only obliged because we have taken from the environment. Now we're obliged. The environment wants to take back. But we don't need to take from the environment we are not a product of the environment. So in a higher sense, we have no obligation. If we can rise to that higher sense of self, no obligation to the world. But this world is not everything. And we are not everything either. So there's a larger picture. There is, we don't exist in a vacuum. It's not a void that we'll enter into upon leaving the emptiness of this world. This is a real void. They call that, this is a false, this is a real void. They call that also a real void too. (laughs) I guess the the voidist's idea. They want to annihilate the, the, the void of the world. And, and live in the void, so to speak. But no, there's, there's a greater circle of environment in relation to which we have something to do. And to know ourselves in terms of our dharma, then, our duty, our, that which we're uh, about, we are a unit of 
serving capacity, giving capacity. We give, that's what we do, we give ourselves. We give ourselves here, we give ourselves there. And according to where we give ourselves, an identity is, is created. Now we've given ourselves to matter, and an identity has arisen as a result of the desires, the sense of necessity derived from identifying with matter that has me chasing after things and so forth. So, where we repose our serving tendency? This is the question that will give rise to um, one identity or another. But some people think that we should have no serving propensity to repose. We shall stop. We are moving in the world in such a way as takers. We shall stop taking. And that will be the be-all and the end-all. So the Ghanis, they seek to stop taking. But they have no sense that they have anything, that there's any higher side to giving than stopping from taking. That they have no... no, uh, They've served the senses that they're tired of, but the sense that there's anyone to serve who's worthy of serving, this has not yet come into, into view. So this is the, the greater environment. So this is what's being talked about here. It says, Savai pum samparo dharma. Savai, vai means be sure about it, certainly, with certainty. Savai pum sam. Pum sam means humanity. For all humanity, you should be sure Hmm. There is a dharma, and it's para, a dharma, a supreme uh, dharma. If the dharma of the self is to serve, then there is a supreme object in whom we can repose ourselves, a unit of serving tendency. Hmm. And that is then the supreme um, dharma. In other words, dharma, it, it implies some action. So what is the dharma of the self? It has something to do. Not just to stop from doing the wrong thing and to rest. That's almost tantamount to extinguishing oneself. Isn't it? And that's how it's thought of in Advaita Vedanta, for example. Extinguish the self, the individual self. Hmm? The individual self thinks itself to be individual and it therefore sees itself as moving, but it doesn't exist actually. Hmm? There's only one and is everywhere and there's no movement for something that's everywhere. Shanti, 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 be peaceful. Stop moving. Hmm? Uh, but actually, <laughs> that, that means to do away with the Dharma. Hmm. No, the self has a Dharma, has a nature. Hmm. It's, uh, it's, it's not false, the individual self. It falsely thinks itself to be something other than what it is. But what it is, is an individual unit of consciousness, like a tiny atomic particle of consciousness, and each one has a different name written on it. Each one has a different service to Krishna within certain sentiments, huge variety of serving possibilities in relation to the Absolute. So this is, he says, Savai Pumsam Dharma The Supreme Dharma for human society is that yato by which by which one can attain bhakti, by which one, that the supreme dharma is that by which one attains bhakti at hoksaja. It means by which one attains parim bhakti, by which one attains devotion to, to adhoksaja. That's a big word, I'll explain it, but um, what's also being said in here is that that ahoy tuki apratihata. It's also being said that there's an activity by which we can attain prem bhakti, and that activity is bhakti. 
also. That by sadhana bhakti, bhakti in practice, we will attain brain bhakti. Implication being, only bhakti gives bhakti. It's a very interesting argument, and it, it comes out more in the later part of the verse. But here, the word adhoksaja, before we go there, is important. Sabaipumsam paro dharma yato bhakti adhoksaja. Supreme dharma is that by which we attain bhakti um, to adhoksaja. It means by which we attain prem, love of God. Adhoksaja. It means transcendental. It means it, it's, it, it speaks in one sense about uh, the limits of mind and uh, language. Ah is the first letter of the Sanskrit alphabet. You have your vowels, a, a, e, e, u, u, a, i, o, in Sanskrit, and then you have your consonants, ka, uh, cha, ja, ja, ka, ka, ja, ja, uh, uh, so on and so forth. And then you have your um, conjuncts, which are combinations of consonants and vowels hmm, combined. So if you look at the beginning of the Sanskrit alphabet, you have a, and at the end you have cha. The last consonant is cha, cha, k-s-a, cha. So here, a, cha, it refers to the whole alphabet, and ja. It said, uh, there is something that ja, that is, that that. It generates the whole outfit, uh, whole um, alphabet, and it means also something that is above the whole alphabet, beyond the whole alphabet. Adhoksaja. Hmm? There is a plane of experience beyond words, hmm? beyond thought. Hmm? Um, and it's such that we cannot say enough about it, we cannot think enough about it. It's full. Hmm? Um, this, so this is the realm of the Godhead. Hmm? Not to be known by any means, it means, other than by the means he himself chooses to be known by. It's called Avarohapanta, a descending path. If God wants to be known, he'll be known. Otherwise not. Hmm? There's ascending paths to knowledge as well. Hmm? These cannot help us to attain that realm. Pujapachidamars once described the adhoksaja idea like the flying saucers, the UFOs, that if you see one, then you try to tell your friends and he's gone. Hmm? But you saw it and you can't, you can't uh, be convinced that that, uh, that you didn't, and so forth. But no one wants to listen. So then you have to find other people hmm, who, who also were shown. The aliens showed themselves. Hmm. The UFOs, they showed themselves to whom they wanted. <laughs> Something like that. And so you have to join a UFO group uh, and then explore that. What was that experience? What did I see? So in the same way, uh, when, when the Godhead wants us to know, we may know. Hmm? Uh, so we get some experience we, we, that, we, that this is, like, this is um, such a thing exists. Hmm? Something beyond the limits of mind and reason and senses uh, exists and it's noble. It's worthy of pursuit. It makes everything that I could collect with my senses, my mind, and just and think about with my intellect small and insignificant in comparison. And I'm part of that. I'm from that soil. I'm of that nature. I'm a, a Amritam 
Putram, the son of immortality. Hmm? Amrit. Amrit. Amrit means death. Am means Amrit. Amrit. Deathlessness. And it means nectar. I'm a son of the deathless land of deathless nectar. Hmm? This is, I, I, this is where I belong. It's my homeland. It's my, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's an inheritance waiting, waiting for me. Hmm? Something like that. Hmm? When I get that, I can be all that I can be. Adhoksaja. Hmm? So some people are affected by that. They think like that. They want that. They pursue that. This makes sense to them. Hmm? They have to then join a sangha of other people like that to get strength for this idea because the world is not against, is not for that idea. It's too high. It's too noble. Hmm? And misery loves company. <laughs> so they try to drag us down. Hmm? And, and we are prone to that. So we'll rationalize away a moment of inspiration that I could have been more. Hmm? More than anything I could think about more than anything that words could say, I could have realized I am that more. But no. It was just a dream. It was just a youthful folly. I shall settle for misery. No. Mrityam amritam gamayo. From death we should go to deathlessness. This is the injunctions of the of the Vedanta of the Veda, and such such utterances have affection behind them. They're giving orders. Ritam amritam gamayo. From death, go to eternality. Go, but that command is full of affection. So, in good company, we can hone that. Message that is bhakti to hone that message. Adhoksaja, adhoksaja to go beyond to go so uh, to, to uh, the supreme dharma is that by which we can enter into that adhoksaja plane by love by bhakti. You can go there by bhakti. That means on his terms. There are different means of knowing. We may know pratyaksha by senses. That is limited. How much can we contact directly with our senses? Even if they were perfect instruments of knowing, how many things can we touch? (laughs) How many things can we see? How many things can we hear? We can't know everything by the senses, even if the senses were perfect instruments of knowing. And of course they're not, and they tell us that readily. Glasses help, but only seeks to make the, serves to make the point. Hmm? They're not perfect instruments of knowing. So we may know pratyaksha paroksha, another platform of knowledge, hmm? by the senses of others. Hmm? Others have gone and touched, tasted, and, and uh smelt and seen and so forth. So through, through connection with them, we may know beyond our immediate um, vicinity. But this is incomplete because, again, I mean, you can't, you can't know what everybody's senses know and you wouldn't want to know. That's another thing. But <laughs> and beyond that, they're all imperfect, these senses, as we've explained. So, so there's another method. Pratyaksha, paroksha, aparoksha. Pratyaksha, paroksha, this is going forward, acquiring, hmm? conquering, hmm? hunting and gathering, is what it is, with the senses in mind. Hmm? And a wise person says, this is taking me towards unknowing. The kind of knowledge I get from that is ignorance, because it obscures any any vision and experience of myself, the experiencer. It's a preoccupation with that which can be experienced matter at the cost 
of realizing, hey, wait a minute, I'm the experiencer. I'm more important and categorically different than that which is experienced. I'm the subjective element, and the objective world is another thing. Without me, what meaning does it have? If matter mattered, independently of consciousness, who would know about it? Who would care? Right? So this pursuit of, 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 of knowledge by way of acquiring things, touching, tasting, and so, and so forth, this preoccupies me with the objective world at the cost of knowing myself and entering into the mysteries of the subjective world. That pursuit in the the ultimate makes me objectify my subjective reality and turn it into something mundane. What a loss, the loss of the self. No, so there's another means, aparoksha, to go in a different way, to go within or go without. This is the mandate. Go within or go without. That's the reality. Hmm? The treasure lies within. And so to realize that, we have to withdraw the senses from sense objects and turn our attention on ourselves. The mystery of the self, of the subjective reality. Hmm? Oh, it's disconcerting. We cannot objectify it. Concretize it. Control it. Hmm? This this problem hmm, is only a result of, of of so much identification with the objective world. Hmm? You understand? Hmm? We have developed a tendency like this. We're looking actually for this for the settling nature of the self, but it's but we're looking for it to, to concretize it. To, so to speak, to get a handle on it. But actually, if we think deeply, we think, that would be boring. Hmm? You see? Love is what is exciting, and it's like moving all the time, right? You can't get a handle on it. It's up and down. She loves me. She loves me not. The self is a unit of loving capacity. Hmm? So you have to be satisfied with unknowing. That's real knowing, but I cannot know everything. Hmm? <laughs> With some uncertainty, that will bring certainty. Hmm. You understand? Certainty about the self, hmm? that it's more than matter, and the fact that it's dynamic rather than static is not a problem. Hmm? So, Aparoksha, we'll go within. But in Aparoksha, approach, then, there is still some, some self, some exercise of, from this side, the yogis, the jnanis. By the strength, for example, of intellect, the jnanis will do vivek and turn within. Hmm? And, and discriminate between matter and spirit. Think deeply and subtly, and he'll come to sattva, sattvaguna, and so forth. But this is some some self effort. This this is not a descending path. And the yogis, through very subtle manipulation of the of the physical self and the subtle self within, controlling that. It's, it's, it's an attempt to get a control on that, a handle on huh? You'll release yourself to some extent from that objective world, from the embodiment and so forth. Hmm? This is to remove oneself by some subtle force, hmm? with the help of the subtle forces within me, from the objective world. Hmm? But it's not, 
it's a concentration on the self that doesn't afford one, as I said earlier, a sense of the self in relation to the entire environment. It's a self-occupation, whereas in bhakti we have the other self's occupation, preoccupation, preoccupation, preoccupation with the whole. The context of being preoccupied with the whole, we understand ourselves as the part. The self-realization that comes about in bhakti there for is one that acquaints us with the greater environment at the same time. So, from paroksha, from pratyaksha, to paroksha, aparoksha, adhoksaja, we come to. This is the fourth, then, way of knowing, plane of knowledge. And that is altogether different. Hmm? That is overtly transcendental. Hmm? And that is descending. If that plane of knowledge wants to reveal itself, then we can know it. Otherwise not. You cannot go into Vaikuntha with your shoes on. You cannot break the doors down there and barge in. It is not your right. It's a gracious grant from that side. Bhakti. Adhoksuja. So here it says, the supreme dharma is that by which we will attain bhakti to Adhoksuja. Adhoksuja is a name for Vishnu, who is beyond the alphabet, beyond thinking, beyond uh, words. There is something beyond that. You're not alone there. Hmm? There's something, and it's very different. It's something, but it's very different. It's very different from this world. The body of the Lord, for example, is said to be formless. It means it, it's a form that's nothing like material forms. I gave the example of one of my students was home visiting his father, and his father said, if you want to eat, there's food in the refrigerator, take whatever you want. He made a big sandwich of lettuce and tomato and cheese and this and that. And the father came in and said, aren't you going to put anything on it? Because he was a meat eater. And so there was meat in the refrigerator. But when the son looked in there, he didn't see food when he saw meat. Hmm? You understand? He didn't see food. So father saw food. Son didn't see food. So this body, material body, it's... It, it may look to some people like Vishnu's form, Anayana's form, but it's altogether different. Hmm? In com- such that we, so much so that we'll say, in relation to this form, he's formless. He's nothing like that form. Hmm? If you analyze it closely, hmm? on the surface, there may be some similarity. Underneath the skin, <laughs> he has no veins, <laughs> and so on. So, so these kind of statements are, are made to emphasize. It's different there. Hmm? It's really different. Adhoksaja. But of course, here in Bhagavatam, while that plane is spoken about, it speaks about a further plane hmm, of knowledge. Aprakrita. This is where the knowledge comes full circle. Prakrita means the mundane. Aprakrita means it looks like the mundane world. It looks small, but it's different. It's entirely different. This is Krishna Leela. It doesn't look that different. Krishna hasn't got in the brudge forearms. People aren't all coming up to him. Om, Om Narayan, Om Narayan, Aswaha. They don't talk to him like that there. They say, hey, Govinda. Hey, Gopal. Hmm? And uh, he appears normal size, human size, medium size, not, not infinite, not infinitesimal in between. Huh? Appears to, a body appears to go through transformations, appears to youth, childhood, uh, adolescence, and so forth. Narayan, we don't find that. We don't find that. Narayan doesn't have a birth. 
childhood and adolescence. No. As we find in Krishna. So it looks more similar, but it's way more different and way more transcendental is the idea than even that hoksaja plane. Hmm? And hoksaja, you know, here that is is the plane where where there's all good. Hmm? Nothing bad there. Hmm? And aprakrita is the plane where the bad is there, but it's good. <laughs> As we say, love turns faults into ornaments. This is the whole one of the one of the main lessons of the Gopi Lila. Hmm? The bad is not only is good, it's the highest good. Hmm? They left their husbands, their children, the milk boiling over, went with they seemed to cross over the Dharma and do the bad. Hmm? The worst thing. This is what's being said there. They do the worst thing. And it's the best thing. Hmm? Love has that power to harmonize. Love has that power to transform. So this is the plane, not of reverential love, agape, but this is transcendental eros. To use the Greek terms. Of course, they didn't have transcendental eros, but we do. (laughs) He talked about atoxaja, agape. We were talking about the, the transcendental Cupid, Madan Mohan, Krishna. Hmm? Aprakrita. But Hoksaja has its place in the Aprakrita realm also. Hmm? This name. It's also a name for Krishna. As I've explained it thus far, it's a name for Vishnu and the other world and so forth. But it has its place in the Aprakrita. It also means Adha, Aksa, Aksha, Ja. Adha means below. Aksha means, in this case, axle. And ja means to be born, or it means, Baladev says, to be rescued. To be rescued from being below the axle. What does that mean? Hmm? After Krishna uh, killed Putana, hmm? and there he was, sitting on her breast, he didn't really kill, the Vishnu in him did. He gave her about some kind of vatsalya bhakti. All the residents came and they, 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 they took Mother Yasoda, took Krishna, and then she worshipped him with different mantras and, and with different, uh, addressed him by different names of, of God and so forth. So this is one. They, they talked about him. Oh, you are the one who hmm, was rescued from being underneath the exile of the cart in the previous Leela, when Shakatasura became invisible, and took the form of a cart. Couldn't see him. It was the form of the cart. He assumed he identified himself with the cart under which Krishna had been placed as a child, an infant, to stay out of the, the heat of the sun. Hmm? Underneath the axle. And, the, and he, he assumed the form of the cart and <coughs> broke the axle. Hmm? And Krishna was somehow rescued by that, by his own nature. <laughs> yeah. Then he killed the Shakatasura. So he is Adhuksaja. Hmm. He, <laughs> he was born from underneath the axe like second birth. He should have died, they said. But he was born. Hmm. Again, how it happened, we don't know. He was rescued. <laughs> this is how they were thinking. So this is a name for Krishna as well. So here it means this. The Supreme Dharma is that by which we will attain bhakti to adhoksaja. It is a haituki, it is a pratihata. It is a haituki means, he further describing that bhakti, it is unmotivated. It means, it ha, it means there's no motivation involved behind it that I'm doing it for something else, for any other reason other than for its own sake. Hmm? And it also means that it's, the nature is that it has no cause. Ahoyituki means no cause. This kind of bhakti, this prem bhakti, it has no cause. That by which, that dharma, which gives rise to prem bhakti, 
Hmm? That Prem Bhakti has no cause and that Dharma has no cause. Bhakti is the cause of itself. It has no cause. Vishwan Chakavitaka has labored in different places to try to demonstrate or, 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 or illustrate this point that, that Bhakti gives Bhakti. It's stated in, in, in Bhagavatam, 11th Canto, Bhakti Sanjataya Bhaktiya. Only Bhakti can give Bhakti. In one sense, it means that in this world, we find there's a cause and there's an effect. Hmm? And the effect is a result, or the cause, excuse me, the, co- yeah, the effect is the result of the cause. The two are related. Hmm? One, the cause, produces the effect. But bhakti is not something that can be produced. It's Nityasiddha Krishna Prem and Sadhya Kabunai. Hmm? It's, uh, it's eternally existing. It's not something we can make. It's not something that didn't exist at a certain time and it will within the frame of time by doing certain actions. No, it's eternally existing. Uh, so in that sense, it has no cause. Just like you asked, what is the cause of God? Well, there's no cause of God. We know the world needs a cause. Even in science, they know the world needs to, needs a cause. They've figured that out. They call it the Big Bang. Hmm? There has to be a cause to the world. They figured that out. But that doesn't. That, that's something that needs a cause. It doesn't mean that everything needs a cause. So to say, well, what caused God? We say, well, no, God doesn't need a cause. We know the world needs a cause. Therefore, we posit God. <laughs> but they ask, what's the cause of God? Well, there's no reason to think that God needs a cause. There's reason to think that the world needs a cause. So, anyway, there's different arguments for that, but, um, but uh, Krishna has no cause. Bhakti has no cause. And the closest thing to the cause of bhakti is the mercy of the devotees. Not the mercy of Krishna. Because if, if Krishna's mercy is the cause of bhakti, then someone may fault him and think, well, he gave bhakti to one, he didn't give it to another. The Uttamadikari is also like that. He doesn't just uh, discriminate. Hmm? Um, the the, the Madhimadikari, he, he's not supposed to discriminate. So if he does, then there's a, there's a problem. Hmm? It's like there's a problem if Krishna discriminates. We'll think, well, that's what's going on. Hmm? But the intermediate devotee, the Madhimadikari, hmm? he discriminates. Hmm? And Bhakti enters his heart, he discriminates who to approach, who not to approach. He thinks about that. He avoids people who are envious, doesn't want to give them a chance to make offenses and so forth. And he tenders to those who are innocent and interested and, and so on and gives them bhakti by, by his mercy. So we can say that to an extent, well, bhakti comes from the mercy of the intermediate devotee. But how do we get the mercy of the intermediate devotee? By his association, Right? Association with devotees is lima bhakti. <laughs> so, so bhakti is is is, is giving bhakti. <laughs> There's no way around that. Hmm? Uh, it's kind of kind of a Zen, you know, koan there. Bhakti gives bhakti, and the more you trace it out, the more you come back to bhakti. Hmm? Bhakti gives bhakti, hmm? and there's a form of bhakti called sadhana bhakti, wherein Activities that are, intr- that are intrinsically bhakti, like hearing and chanting about Krishna, are performed with the senses. And Krishna is thought about with the mind. Now, these senses are material. This mind is material. Hmm? But bhakti is generous, and extending herself as she does to... Um, the people in general, hmm? they can take up the hearing and the chanting with their senses, with their mind. And that's called sadhana bhakti. It's a form of shuddha bhakti, pure bhakti, hmm? as we teach it. Hmm? But it's in the realm of practice. Hmm? And as we do sadhana bhakti, 
these senses and this mind actually become purified. They take on a spiritual quality. Ataha Sri Krishna. Namadi. Nabavit Grahamindri. Sevan Mukhe Jivado. Swayameva Spuratyadha. You will get the spurti of Krishna, the experience of Krishna, the manifestation of Krishna in your life by this cultivating this bhakti ego, the bhakti abhiman, the serving ego, rather than the enjoying ego. That means we'll use our senses, rishikena, rishikesha, sevanam, bhakti rutam. This is Narada's definition of pure bhakti. This is, this, we're just in the Bhagavad's definition of pure bhakti. Later Rupa in Shirupa and Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu gives his. Hmm? What does he say? Anukulasya, Anukulamya, Anyabilashita Sunyam. These three verses are all connected. Hmm? There's a refining of them from Nard Pancharatra hmm, to, to Bhagavatam to Bhakti Rasamrita Sindhu. Hmm? So, at any rate, when we convert our enjoying ego, to a serving ego, Rishikena Rishikesha. When we use our senses in the service of the master of the senses, this is bhakti. Hmm? And that purifies the senses, that brings the self out. And then, when we attain bhava, bhakti proper, then the activities are performed out of ecstasy, out of spiritual emotion, not out of practice. It's just like it said, imitation of a good thing is a good thing. Hmm? So if someone has bhava and you become attracted to them, so you imitate them. Hare Krishna. <laughs> and so forth. That's a good thing. It's a kind of bhakti. Hmm? It's called sadhana bhakti. And it gives rise to bhav bhakti, and bhav bhakti gives rise to prem bhakti. So bhakti generates bhakti. Bhakti is ahoyituki, and bhakti is apratihata. Hmm? Ahoyituki. So it's unmotivated, it's, it's not caused by anything. And, and also nothing can stop it, nothing can check it, nothing can get in the way. It, it, is, it is powerful enough to do away with all um, obstacles. Um, we find in the gopis' love there were so many obstacles for their meeting with Krishna. They couldn't, they couldn't check their bhakti. So... Um, more to be said, but we're running out of time. And to, to short here to come to a conclusion, this kind of bhakti, yayatma, suprasujati, that will satisfy the self. Hmm? Satisfy yourself because it will satisfy the supreme self. Hmm? He likes that very much. Hmm? Like, that, like that bhakti of the brudge is what it's talking about. That kind of bhakti. He that makes him tick. That's what turns him on. That keeps that's why Krishna is always awake. Narayan is sleeping half the time. He's bored by the kind of bhakti that um, is uh, carried on in uh, in in awe and reverence. Krishna's not that bo- I should say that bores Krishna. It it turns Narayan on, but it doesn't turn Krishna on. Hmm? And Krishna is so turned on that he doesn't sleep. He only appears to go to sleep, and then he can sneak out the window and chase after the bhakti hmm, of the gopis throughout the night. Right? So it fully satisfies him, so it will fully satisfy you. Your atma your, means your mind, atma, your intelligence, yourself, hmm, everything. Any question? Yes. I couldn't quite follow how the ten verses were connected. Like, what was that connecting? They're connected because they're all speaking about Uttam Bhakti. Mm-hmm. Hmm? But there, there's a, a development of the idea, refining of the idea, a more clearly stating of the idea in these verses. And Rupa Goswami really taking from these verses, he like wrote his own verse that more clearly, apratihata, for example. I mean, I can go into it. I'll go into it a little bit in relation to Shirupa's verse. Shirupa says, jnana karmadi, anabritam. So, apratihata means unencumbered. 
Hmm? Unchecked. So another way to understand it is that it's, it's Gyan Karmadi Anavritam. Anavritam and uh, Apratiyata. Anavritam means it's checked. It's got a lid on it. It's, it shouldn't have a lid on it. A lid in relation to karma. A lid in relation to, to Gyan. We, we, it should be unencumbered by Gyan, by, by karma not checked by them. For example, if I come into the bhakti marg, the path of bhakti, and I'm from India, and so I was on the karma marg, hmm, uh, doing dharma and a religious life, and so my father died, so I had to perform the shraddhas right hmm, for the ancestors and so forth. It's just like a, a, an occasional duty in the in the, in the, in, the, in the dharma marg that one has to perform, there are various so many duties. So um, here I am in the bhakti marg. My father dies. I think, uh oh, I had better go perform the shraddha, or there'll be something lacking in my life. That means that your bhakti is covered by karma, by the by your by your identification with the karma mark and the thought that neglecting some of those duties will somehow um, incur um, uh, a bad reaction for me without understanding the strength of bhakti, which Krishna says in the Gita, sarva-dharman pratyaja. All this dharma mark, throw it out. You don't worry about it. You just serve me. You don't worry about the shraddha ceremony. You don't have to do that. Or any other obligation in the realm of Dharma. All of that is fulfilled indeed. Sin and come to me. As, <laughs> as the gopis did, for example. Apparently. Hmm? Apparently they did Adharma to emphasize this point. They did Adharma and came to him. Hmm? Was there any loss for them? No. Hmm? Now you can perform these type of duties and responsibilities without thinking that if I don't do it, this will be a problem. Bhakti's not going to cover me. Hmm? Something like that. You can do that so that you, in order to appear normal, so your parents might still like you, and then you can tell them something about bhakti. <laughs> something like that. But that doesn't mean that your bhakti's covered by, by or by gyan. That you, you, so anavritam, gyan karmadi, he's very specific. This verse says, ahoyitukiya pratihata. It's unmotivated. It means the nature of this bhakti is that it's 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 uh, it's self-generating. It's independent bhakti. It's constituted of swarup shakti. You know, going into detail, and it's 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 not covered. There's no there's there's no other thing that's in the background that it's so rupas. That's what I mean. That's the connection. He's explaining it more more fully in detail. He's absorbed in that kind of bhakti. He can talk about it. Anything else? Anything from that side? Nothing no rain tonight. It's the rainy season there in Madhavana, Costa Rica. All right. Grantara Srimad Bhagavatam Kijai. Oh, Bhaktivinda Kijai. Oh, Premanandi.